Let's pray together. Sovereign King of glory, what a joy it is to know truly that you have loved your people so much that you have sent your Son into the world to save us, that you have lifted up the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, that we would have eternal life simply by believing upon him. You have done this despite our great sinfulness. We have elevated our love of self to the level of idolatry. We have refused to submit ourselves to your authority. We have sought our own way rather than surrender our wills and lives to your word. We flaunt our flesh-driven wickedness at every turn, and yet your love for us not only remains, but continues to draw us to yourself all the more. Your spirit continues to intercede for us even though we do not know how to pray as we should, or even when we don't know what to pray for. And so, despite our sin, we cry out to you for mercy. We cast ourselves at the foot of the cross and plead the blood of Christ, knowing that you will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, there is so much hurt and pain for us here in this life. We have lost those we love we have been hurt tremendously by people we trust. We have been mistreated and maligned and abused. In the midst of this life, you have promised to give us peace and comfort through the work of your spirit in us. Lord, please work this peace and comfort in our hearts. Give us strength to endure to the end, both in our struggle against sin and in walking through our suffering. But even more significant than the peace and comfort that you have promised, is that in our hurt and distress, we find further unity in Christ. You are making us more like him in every respect through our sufferings, and you are showcasing the majesty of Jesus Christ in us to the watching world. God, please glorify your Son in us in our suffering. And please give us hearts that desire this glory above all else. Set the glory of Jesus Christ above our comfort, our pleasures, even our very lives. Place the glory of Christ so high that there is nothing else that even begins to draw our attentions or affections. We know that the only hope that we have for the promises that you have made to be true for us is the gospel of Christ. The gospel is, this gospel is what saves, what changes, what unites, and what gives life. Please cause us to rest all of our hope in the gospel of Christ today. As we come to your word this morning, Father, please speak to us. Please work in us to change and to come under submission to your perfect will. Work the miracle of sanctification in your people. And if there are any among us this morning who do not know the hope of the gospel, we pray that you would work the miracle of regeneration in them, that they would be saved. Glorify your name in us in these ways today, Lord. In the name of Christ, the Son of Man, we pray. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 1 today. Last week, we spent our time together in Acts chapter 15, where we looked at the first theological conflict in the church. There were some in the early church who believed that in order to be a Christian that the law of Moses must be followed in addition to the person having their faith in Christ. This was not an issue of you must obey God's word after becoming a Christian. This was an issue of you're not really a Christian unless you have faith in Christ and you follow the law of Moses. These requirements were brought to churches that were primarily made up of Gentiles, which is a word for non-Jewish people. And the main stipulation was that the men must be circumcised. That was the big thing. They would go into churches where these Gentiles were, where circumcision was not a part of their culture, it was not a part of their belief system beforehand, and they would come in and they would say, look, it's really great that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. But you're missing something. You're missing the law. And so in order for you to be a true Christian, you must first be a Jew. In order to be a Jew, you must be circumcised and you must follow the law. And it is only through that pathway that you can be a Christian. 
And so this came to a theological discussion in the church in Jerusalem. The apostles were there, the elders of that particular church, and the entire church was a part of that group that was discussing this question. And what they did was they came to the conclusion that the law of Moses is not binding upon Christians. Kids, last week we studied question 33. Pastor Michael already reviewed it with you this morning. But last week our question was, should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation in their own works or anywhere else? And what is the answer? No. No. Everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. That was the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. One of the things that we highlighted last week was the unity of the church in reaching this decision. Once they reached this conclusion, the entire group was in agreement. Nobody was left in the meeting going, now wait a minute, I don't like this. We're told that all of them together agreed upon this and thought it was good to send a letter making this plain to the Gentile churches. We could probably learn something from them in the modern church. Amen. And that unity within the church was the foundation that made it clear that anyone who continued teaching that the law was a requirement for Christians was teaching a false gospel. From that point forward, up until then, there was confusion, there was disagreement. You know, maybe their motivations were good. Maybe their heart was in the right place. But once the church got together and made this decision, from that point forward, there was no dissension. If you came in and said, the law is essential to be a Christian, you were teaching a false gospel. Unfortunately, this false teaching persisted. And it still persists today. We see it manifested in a variety of ways. From the belief that Christians are mandated to circumcise their sons, which we are not, to the belief that we must forsake sin before coming to Christ. That in order to truly be saved, you have to turn from your sin first and then place your faith in Christ. But see, the truth of the matter is, we cannot turn from our sin. We are incapable of forsaking our sin. It is only by the work of the Spirit in us that we have the ability to not sin. And when does the Spirit come, come into us? When we are saved. We see this false teaching rear its head up over and over again, even today. And today we will begin a series through the letter that Paul wrote specifically to combat this false teaching. And my hope is that through this series, we will collectively develop a right understanding of the law and the gospel. You can't see it because we don't have a screen this morning, but that is the subtitle. All of my sermon series through books of the Bible have a subtitle that highlights the theme that we're going to address in that series. And the theme of our series through the book of Galatians is the law and the gospel. And so let's start this morning by looking at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. And we will begin where Paul begins, with an affirmation of his apostolic authority. If you got a bulletin on your way in or got one of our sermon listening guides, you'll see we have three points this morning, and that is our first one, apostolic authority. We're going to do nine verses this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read all nine, but our first point is going to focus mainly on the first verse. And so let's read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some people who, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul begins his letter to the Galatians by referring to himself as an apostle. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, if you have read the Bible at any point in your life, if you've been in church for any length of time, you have heard the word apostle. But the question we have to answer is, what is an apostle? One of the things that I try not to do as a pastor is to take for granted that the people who are hearing me preach understand these words, even though they are commonly used in the church, even though we've read them a million times, we don't always know what they mean. And so this morning, I want to take, take a few moments and address this question. What is an apostle? Well, the word literally means messenger. It means messenger. Now, it's not used in the sense of like someone who delivers a message. It's used in the sense of like an official envoy or a representative. Someone who was of significant importance uh, or influence would send someone in their place for a variety of reasons. So maybe the king doesn't want to trouble himself by going off to one of his faraway cities and dealing with a problem. So he would send an envoy who would go on his behalf and deal with the problem. You can think of it in a similar way that someone like the, the Secretary of State in our country functions. They represent the United States government in an official capacity. But there is one significant difference between someone like the Secretary of State and an apostle. Because the Secretary of State, although they have authority, although they represent the government, they do not have final say. If the Secretary of State goes to another country to negotiate, say, a treaty of some kind, they still have to get the president to sign off on it. Okay, But apostles are different because they, as representatives, have the ability to act as though they were the person they were representing. That is how this worked in these cultures. These envoys would go, and essentially, they were acting as the king. It was almost like the king had sent a clone of himself to go and do this thing. And so what this envoy said was exactly as if the king had said it. That's why one of the greatest crimes you could commit in these ancient cultures was if a messenger came to you from a far off land for you to do harm or violence to these messengers. Because it's essentially your way of saying, if, the ki if your king was here, we would do the same to him. So when we come to the biblical office of apostle, when we talk about apostles in scripture, they are representatives of Jesus Christ himself. They have authority given to them by Jesus Christ himself. The office of apostle is kind of a continuation of the prophets in the Old Testament. So prophets in the Old Testament were given authority from God to speak his word. And so when a prophet would say, thus says the Lord, the people of Israel were bound to obey that word because it was just as though God himself had said it. The apostles have that same level of authority. When they spoke, they spoke for Jesus. This was necessary because Jesus had ascended into heaven. Jesus was no longer there among the early church telling them what to do. He was no longer alongside them addressing their questions because the truth is, that although Jesus had given us his spirit to live within us, there were still unanswered questions, such as the question that we looked at last week. There were still things in the early church, in doctrine, that were unclear. People needed to be taught. They needed to be led. And that was what the apostles did. So these men, the apostles, were given authority by Christ himself to establish his church and the doctrine that defined and shaped it. So when you read the New Testament, most of it is written by apostles or people who were adjacent to apostles. Their words have authority because they have authority given to them by Christ himself. And that's really important 
because the apostles were not speaking on their own behalf. They were not saying, well, I have authority because I say so. They were not speaking out of their own mind. They were not saying, I think this is best. They were using what the Lord had given them. So if you were with us in our, in our class on the Holy Spirit last week in theology class, we talked about how the Lord gives his spirit, especially in the Old Testament, in special measure to certain people for a specific purpose. He did this for national leaders. He did this for great warriors. He did this for prophets. And I would argue that he did this for apostles as kind of the last remnant of that. That they had a special measure of the Holy Spirit that allowed them to easily discern truth from error as they were establishing and forming the doctrine that the church was founded upon. And so they're not speaking out of their own mind. They are speaking from the mind and will of Jesus in a way that average Christians cannot do. This was very important because there were no New Testament scriptures during this time period. They couldn't just say, well, how do we deal with the law and the gospel? Well, let's look at Galatians. There was no Galatians. So having apostles, having people with this level of authority was necessary to be able to answer these questions. And so apostolic authority was the thing that bore weight. And their words eventually became the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, a.k.a. the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, a.k.a. the New Testament. So Peter establishes that the Lord had prophets who gave us the Old Testament and apostles who gave us the New Testament. And Peter is speaking as an apostle. The early church office of apostle, and it wasn't office. This was not something that you could just declare that you were. You couldn't just walk around and be like, hey, hey, I'm an apostle. Listen to me. It required specific criteria. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. They had to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. And Paul, in the scriptures, talks about how he was the last apostle because he saw the resurrected Christ after he had ascended to heaven. If you're not familiar with the story, Paul was persecuting Christians on his way to Damascus, and the Lord literally knocked him off of a donkey and revealed himself to him and said, why are you persecuting me? He saw the resurrected Christ, and he was the last one. Not only were they eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, but they had a direct calling from Jesus. So we know, for example, that Jesus' 12 disciples, minus Judas, plus Matthias, who was added after Judas, we know that they were apostles. They were directly called by the Lord. Jesus went to them and said, hey, you come follow me. And in the case of Matthias, when they were replacing Judas, they drew lots. And one of the things that we should always understand is that there is no such thing as random chance. When you throw dice, when you draw straws, when you cast lots, whatever it may be, the Lord is the one who makes those land on what they land on. And so when they cast lots to determine who would be the new 12th disciple, it came upon Matthias, not by random chance, but because of the will of the Lord. And so they were called directly by Jesus. Well, Paul had a direct calling from Jesus. They're on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? Knock it off. He had a direct calling from Jesus to go and serve him. Also, apostles were able to demonstrate particular signs of a true apostle, as Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians 12. So these are specific types of miracles that only apostles can do. And these were not miracles that they could do for show. These were not things so people would go, wow, that's a cool magic trick. These were things that they could do so that, they, so that people who saw them performing these miraculous signs would say, okay, they truly do have power and authority given to them by God. 
when, you, when I preached through Mark's gospel, I talked a lot about how when Jesus did miracles, the reason for his miracles was not so that we could all go, wow, Jesus could do a lot of really cool things for us, even though that's how the crowds kind of interpreted it. Jesus repeatedly said, I do these things so that you know that my words have authority. Same is true of the apostles. One of those particular signs was the baptism of the Holy Spirit which is something that we see uniquely in the book of Acts, where people would come to faith in Christ and they are baptized in water. And then later, they're visited by an apostle who comes in and then they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come to them later. And some people have wrongly said, well, this still happens today. But at issue here was the affirmation of the Holy Spirit coming upon Christians once being taught and visited by apostles was both an affirmation of apostolic authority and also an affirmation of sound doctrine. Because in the early days of the church, without scriptures, people are going around and they're saying, you need to hear about this Jesus guy, especially among the Gentiles. They have zero context in which to understand this. And so who knows what exactly they're hearing, what exactly they're being taught. And the apostles would come behind and they would correct understanding. And at that time, the Lord would give the Holy Spirit because this was the true gospel. This was a way that the Lord protected the integrity of the early church while there was still so much confusion apart from the scriptures. This no longer takes place because we do have the scriptures to safeguard our knowledge and understanding of sound doctrine. So now, there is no separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit. Those things are simultaneous. Now Paul, in claiming his apostolic office, is establishing his authority over the doctrine of the church on Christ's behalf. That's why he's doing this. This letter is going to be filled with correction. The Galatians are deeply, deeply confused about what is the gospel and what is not. And so Paul is opening his letter by saying, I am an apostle. My word is exactly as worthwhile as Christ's. Side note, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of red letter Bibles. Not a big fan of red letter Bibles. There's nothing inherently wrong with them, but my problem with them is that red letter Bibles kind of give the impression that Jesus's words carry more weight. I've actually had conversations with people who in having a disagreement about doctrine, their response, I'll point out something from Galatians or I'll point out something from, you know, Romans or something like that. And they'll say, well, are those words read? And I'll say, well, yes, ma'am. In true churches all around the world every Sunday. And they'll go, but no, are they the color red? Because if Jesus didn't say it, then it's not as important. Well, no, that, that shows you don't understand how the Lord built his church. Because Paul, as an apostle, saying these things to the Galatians is exactly the same as if Jesus himself wrote this letter. We need to understand that. And so if you have a red letter Bible, I'm not judging you. I'm not saying go throw your red letter Bible in the garbage. I'm just saying, remember, those red words just the same as the black ones, okay? Or blue or purple or whatever other color your Bible's in. All right. Paul's status as an apostle or as an authority was apparently called into question by those who were troubling the church. They seemed to be claiming that Paul had kind of appointed himself as an apostle without really being an apostle. So they're following him into these Gentile churches and they're saying, listen, Paul's telling you he's an apostle. He's telling you he's an authority. He's not He's not really an apostle. And so Paul asserts his apostleship. He asserts it is not of himself nor any other man, but of Christ the Son and God the Father. Paul's saying, I, I wasn't made an apostle by men. The church didn't decide, oh, Paul's an apostle. Jesus Christ made Paul an apostle. Because only Jesus Christ can make apostles. But even so, I think it is good for us to recognize that other apostles did see Paul as an apostle. They recognized his authority. In 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16, we find this. Therefore, beloved, 
since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of the, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, amen, Peter, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter, whose apostolic status is not in question, he's the guy they wrote about in the Gospels, okay? He's the one that John really loved to call out for all of his bad behavior. Peter ran fast, but the other disciple ran faster. All, all the other gospels say one of Jesus' disciples struck the ear of the servant. And John's like, Peter did it. So everybody knows Peter is an apostle. And here is Peter putting Paul on the same level. He puts Paul's writings as scripture. He says Paul writes about these things, which the ignorant and unstable twist as they do other scriptures. So not only do we have Paul's affirmation of his own apostolic authority given to him by Christ and by God the Father, we have other apostles saying, yep, Paul's also an apostle. So Paul's apostolic authority is real and it is important. And before we move past this point, I think, something, I think there's something really important for us to recognize. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. The office of apostle has passed away. There are no more apostles. It was necessary for a time due to the unknown nature of Christian doctrine to have these men who had this weight of authority. But now that we have the scriptures, there is no longer a need for individuals to have this sort of authority. We no longer need men to speak on behalf of God because God's word speaks on behalf of God. That's why I tell you all the time, Everything that I say to you, if it's not found in the scriptures, if I can't back it up from God's word, disregard it. I make sure that my doctrine is built upon what is found in scripture and scripture alone. And just in case you're questioning that, well, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe apostles are still real, maybe they are still good. Remember, one of the necessary requirements of being an apostle was that you were an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. You saw him with your own two eyes. Well, guess what? Paul was the last one. No one else has seen the resurrected Christ with their own two eyes. So just in terms of what is required, they fail to meet the job, the job requirements. They can't be an apostle. The authority over the church of understanding and correcting doctrine now rests in the hands of the church with the congregation charged with admitting and dismissing members, performing church discipline, and rightly teaching doctrine. That is the job of the whole church. So that, while that does not mean that every one of you gets a turn in the pulpit, it does mean that part of your job is to make sure that your pastors are teaching and preaching sound doctrine. And when we don't, correct us. And if we don't get corrected, fire us. That's the job of the church. That's where the authority now rests. There are no apostles who can say, thus says the Lord. But there is a church that says, but the Bible says this. That's, where that, that's how that works now. Anyone who calls themselves an apostle today is claiming a level of authority that they do not have. And what they are trying to do is take authority away from where the Lord Jesus has placed it, in the hands of the body as a whole. What you will find every single time is that people who say that they are an apostle want to place themselves above correction, above rebuke, and above discipline. That's what they are trying to do. And we should summarily reject not just their apostleship, but we should reject them and their teaching completely. We should not say, oh, well, I know they say they're an apostle, but they do say some good stuff. Who cares? Reject them because they are claiming authority that they do not have. 
So Paul, after establishing his apostolic authority, moves to, moves to recognize what it is that unites us, and that is the gospel, the true gospel. That's our second point this morning, the true gospel. Let me read again verse 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There is only one thing that truly makes a church a church. We are not affiliated on any other basis that is as noteworthy or meaningful or unifying as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what draws us together as a church. If it were not for the gospel, this building would not exist. This body would not exist. We are here because of the gospel. We can be completely different in every single way but still find our commonality in the good news of Christ's redemption of sinners. That is what the church is built upon. But the question that we have to be able to answer is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And you might think to yourself, well, duh. Duh, pastor. Everybody knows what the gospel is. You would be incredibly surprised by how many Christians cannot tell you what the gospel is. By how many Christians do not understand significant, inescapable points of the gospel. Every year, Ligonier Ministries, which is a fantastic ministry, they're Presbyterian, but we don't hold it against them, they do, they do a survey, the state of theology, and they question Christians. And they ask them basic theological questions, and then they put out their results, and their results are honestly heartbreaking. Did you know that nearly 50% of evangelical Christians in the United States of America, so these are people who say they are evangelical, they say they are Christians, almost 50%, like 48% of them, say that Jesus was not God. Nearly half. Brothers and sisters, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you are not a Christian. And so when I say to you, we must understand what the gospel is, and you say, well, we all understand, do we? Do we? Really? Because I don't know that the church in America really does. The issue here in Galatia, as we will discuss more in the next point, is that some have come proclaiming a false gospel. And as much as I would love to say we no longer have this problem, we very much do. And the only possible way for us to recognize a false gospel is to know the true gospel so thoroughly that we can easily spot a phony. This is how people who authenticate valuable things, this is how they do their job. They don't go around and learn every possible way that they can fake a coin to make it look more valuable. No, they know the real thing so well that anything that stands out from it, they can go, well, that's not right. I used to watch the show Pawn Stars. I don't even know if that's still on TV anymore. But people would come in with these things that they were insistent were e extremely valuable. And the owner of the pawn shop would always say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I know a guy. They'd come in with a, a baseball card or a a leather jacket from World War II or, you know, some coin collection or whatever. And he would say, well, I know a guy. I know, I know somebody who specializes in these things. And they would come in and they would look at these things and they would say, well, look, you can see here in the signature on this piece of paper, the way that the ink dried in this particular way shows that this ink was invented 40 years after this document claims to have been written. So it's not possible. Now, they, they only know that because they know what the real thing looks like. Or sometimes they would come in and they would say, oh, 
no, this is 100% genuine. You can tell because of this, that, and the other. And, and they would say, well, how much is it worth? And he'd say, I don't know, $15,000? Then the owner of the pawn shop would say, I'll give you 20 bucks for it. That's basically how the show went. But they knew whether it was genuine or phony because they knew the real article, the genuine article, so well they could spot a phony. Brothers and sisters, this is how we must know the gospel. We must know the true gospel so well that the moment any falsehood creeps in, we go, wait, no, no, that's not right. Paul, in these verses, gives us true gospel elements in order that we can easily identify false gospel. Now, to be clear, not every element necessary to believe is contained here, but they are sufficient to combat much false teaching. These are some of the things that Paul says in his introduction to the letter to the Galatians. Jesus Christ is God. He says that. He says not from men nor through men, speaking of his apostleship, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Well, if he says it's not from man, but it's from Jesus Christ, well, that must clearly mean Jesus is something other than a man, right? Paul affirms the divinity of Jesus Christ. Paul also tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father. He's the Son of the Father. He establishes two-thirds of Trinitarian doctrine right there. He says that Jesus, he teaches that Jesus Christ is a man who lived a perfect life and died for us. In verse 4, it says Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Well, Jesus could only deliver us from our sins if he was a human and if he was perfect. A sacrifice must be a perfect man. And so Paul affirms that. Paul also affirms that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In verse 1, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells us that Jesus fully delivers us both from our sins and from the evil age in verse 4. Not a stationary forgiveness that resets the clock to zero and then we got to figure it out on our own from there. But we are fully delivered from our sins and from the sin in this world. He continues to draw us to himself. Paul also affirms that all of this happened according to the Father's will. This is not the will of man. This is not something that was figured out by people. Oh, well, all we got to do is find this perfect guy who happens to be truly God and truly man, and then we can kill him, and then we'll be saved. No, all of this was the will of God. It's not something we can add anything to because it is God who has done it. And then also Paul affirms that Jesus will be forever glorified just as the Father. In verse 5 he says, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Jesus' ascension into heaven is not the end of the story. Jesus didn't die, rise, and then go to heaven and say, good luck, guys. But he promised that he is not only coming back, but that he will be fully glorified forever and ever and ever. Amen. Paul gives us things that are true of the gospel. These are all things that you must believe in order to be a Christian. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of the Father. Jesus is a man who lived a perfect life and died for us. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus fully delivers us from both sin and from the evil age. That this was according to the Father's will and that Jesus will be forever glorified. You must believe these things in order to be a Christian. Too many people treat doctrine, teach scripture as though it is a buffet. Where you can walk down the line and say, well, I want this and not that. I know this is going to come as a shock to you all, but I do enjoy a good buffet. I enjoy a golden corral, mostly because when they say, would you like a vegetable? I can say, no. <laughs> I would like steak and chicken and mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese. And when I'm done with that, give me another plate of it. 
because that's the point of a buffet. But you cannot treat the word of God like that. You cannot take what you like and leave what you don't. You cannot say, I really like the whole eternal life part. That sounds great. Really not a big fan of the submission part. So I'm going to leave that at the bar. I'll take extra eternal life. I'm a really big fan of peace and joy. Give me extra helpings of that. That whole, like, die to self thing, no thank you. No thank you. Let somebody else take that garbage. That's how too many of us treat it. What we should understand is that it is much more like one of those really fancy restaurants where there is no menu, and you get there, and you pay the chef like $400, and they say, here's what's for dinner. Or some of you might find it more relatable to say it's like your mama's kitchen, where you get what you get, you don't throw a fit. Say that to my children all the time. I don't like this. Well, I don't care. It's what's for dinner. Eat it. The Lord does not care if you don't like what doctrine is in his word. He doesn't say, well, I'll make adjustments for it since you don't really care too much for it. No, he says, this is what is true. This is what is real. And you must believe this. You must submit yourself to it. We now find the things that we must believe enumerated for us in places like the creeds of the early church, defining what is and what is not orthodox Christian belief. And if you find yourself at odds with the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostolic Creed, the Athanasian Creed, if you read through those things and you say, I don't agree with that, I got news for you, you're wrong. You are wrong. You must believe those things because that is true gospel doctrine. If you refuse to believe the one true gospel, you are out of step with the authority of Scripture. And that is exactly what is happening at the church in Galatia. And that brings us to our last point in verses 6 through 9 where we find accursed. Accursed. Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Make special notice that Paul repeats that line. That is how strongly he intends for us to take that. Paul says that the actions of the Galatians have left him astonished because in their submission to false doctrine, they have deserted Christ. Paul says that they are turning to an altogether different gospel than the one true gospel. The issue here in Galatia is that what is being taught in the church is contrary to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. The things that they are teaching are things that go against what we know to be true. And we will get into this more specifically in the like in coming weeks, but just to summarize it for you very briefly, this same thing that they were addressing last week at the church at the Jerusalem Council is what is being taught in Galatia, that these people must adhere, adhere to the law of Moses in order to be truly Christian. And that is a false gospel. And so Paul says that anyone who is doing this is accursed. Now that word may not sound as severe to us as it should. But what that word means is that these people who are teaching this false gospel are condemned to hell. They are still under their sin. They are not just having a little bit of a lapse of understanding. These people are showing themselves to not be Christians. This is not to say that they have lost their salvation. Your salvation cannot be lost because you did nothing to gain it. What this is doing is it is revealing that they were never truly saved by faith in the true Jesus. 
They had made up in their own minds and hearts a different Jesus that they thought was better than the one true Jesus. That's the true issue here. False gospels lead us to place our faith in false Christs. Sorry about that. So that's, that's the issue. False gospels lead us to place faith in false Christs. And false Christs cannot save. That's the thing. This is not a simple issue of, oh, they got it a little bit wrong. They have submitted themselves to a false Christ, and a false Christ gives no hope, gives no salvation. That's why it's important that we know and believe the one true gospel. Paul even goes so far as to say that if he, as an apostle, preaches a different gospel, or even if an angel from heaven were to show up at their church and preach a different gospel, that they are accursed. Paul is saying, even myself, with all of my apostolic authority, if I were to show up and preach a different gospel than the one true gospel, what I am revealing to you is not that you should now listen to this other gospel. He's saying, I'm showing you I'm not really an apostle. And you should reject what I say because I am accursed. And he goes so far as to say if an angel from heaven were to show up. Now this is especially significant, right? Because these angelic messengers from the Lord were something that you could not doubt, right? When angels showed up, everybody's like, oh, that's an angel. And Paul says, even if an angel shows up and they preach a false gospel, don't listen to them. Let them be accursed. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that no matter how much we like someone, the gospel is more important. Paul says that the one thing that outweighs even the authority of an apostle, even the appearance of an angel, is the truth of the gospel. And we far too often treat false teaching with kid gloves. We treat it like, oh, it's just an oopsie-daisy instead of a damnable sin. We treat it as though, oh, well, they're just confused and we can agree to disagree instead of realizing that they are leading people straight to hell. And when we do not reject it, when we do not speak against it, when we do not call it what it is, we are complicit in it. And yes, there are differences in what we can agree to disagree on. And we can still call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. But our doctrine and practice has implications regarding what we believe about the gospel. We need to understand that everything that we believe as far as doctrine says something about what we believe about the gospel. And to deny those things is to deny the Lord. Let me give you an example, okay? The Bible tells us that those who are called to be pastors are men. The Bible tells us that. It is not because women are less gifted. It is not because women are less capable. It is not because women are less qualified. It is just the order that God has decreed, okay? That, that's all it is. It's not because I am somehow better, to, better than you because I have boy parts and you have girl parts. It's nothing to do with any of that. It's just what the Lord has said. Now, there are some who reject that and say, no, 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 no. A pastor can be whoever. Whoever wants to be a pastor can be a pastor as long as they're called by God. But here's the problem with that. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That husbands play a particular role and wives play a particular role. And when we start to reject the way that the Lord has ordered things, we are then rejecting the way that the Lord has decreed these things to take place. That the Lord has made these things a particular image in a particular way. And this, the message of Christ in the church is the gospel. And so when we start to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, men, women, whoever, when we start to reject the Bible's teaching on marriage, we are rejecting the gospel. 
We are creating problems from things that we think are small, but they are linked to the one true gospel. False teaching is never just isolated in a vacuum. It has implications on bigger and more significant things. This is why your pastors, Pastor Michael and myself, are so passionate about doctrine and theology. Because what we believe about Christ is everything. I don't care who your favorite sports team is, as long as it's not the New York Yankees or the Atlanta Falcons. I don't care what kind of music you enjoy. I mean, I care, but it's not that important to me. I don't particularly care who your favorite author is. I care what you know and believe about Jesus Christ. Because that has eternal significance. That's what matters to me. And Pastor Michael and I, we are accountable to the Lord for what we teach and preach here in this church. And we take that responsibility deadly seriously. And our heart for you is that you would take your responsibility to guard your own hearts from false doctrine deadly serious as well. That's what we want for you. That's what the Bible calls us to. That's what Paul is telling the Galatians here in Galatians chapter 1. He is saying, what you believe about Christ and the gospel is of eternal significance. And getting it wrong has eternal consequences. The way we know Jesus is to know his word. And the way we understand his word is by building our understanding around sound doctrine. Here at our church, we have a confession of faith that serves as a guardrail to keep us from leaning on our own understanding in the pursuit of the true Christ. Not that our confession is infallible in the same way that scripture is, but it would be foolish of us to think that our own interpretation of the Bible is infallible alongside scripture itself. That's the error. Too many people say, well, I don't need a confession. I just need the Bible. Well, what you're really saying is I am infallible. My understanding is infallible. My interpretation is infallible. I don't need the church. I don't need any kind of church history. I don't need any kind of confession. I can do it by myself. And no, you can't. No, you can't. Church, we must commit ourselves to sound doctrine. We must commit ourselves to the true gospel. We must commit ourselves to ordering our lives around the word of God. To do anything less is to submit ourselves to a false gospel. And the first step to committing ourselves to these things is to submit ourselves to the true gospel, to place our faith fully and truly and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our call today is to know him, to love him, and to serve him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel that you have so clearly given us in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know and believe and understand the true gospel. Help us to reject false teaching, to reject false doctrine, to place our faith totally and fully in Jesus Christ. Father, do this in us, we pray. In Christ's name.